Want to figure out the most complicated way possible to light a candle? Well, then you came to the right place, because we are talking The Incredible Machine this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity, or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 24 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. Joe here, as usual, and we are back once again, because it has been two weeks, to talk about a game from the Dawson pre-Windows XP era. Uh, the past two weeks have been a little bit busy for me. Uh, I guess I, I talked last week about, you know, work being a little crazy and being a little late on the last show and and all of that. So, uh, you know, the, the craziness continues. It's died down a little bit, but, uh, but stuff is still, uh, is still going on. So I'm glad that, uh, it's the weekend and I was able to, to sit down, write up the show, do some research and, uh, and record right now for you guys. Cause we got a really cool topic this week. I'm really excited to talk about it. So enough of that and let's get on to the news. So then we can get things rolling. So this week in the news, we got a couple of items, but firstly, over on the Facebook group, Paul pointed out a special project started by some of his friends and game design legend Peter Molyneux. Uh, the project is called Death Inc. Now, the Kickstarter page for the project describes it as Dungeon Keeper, Theme Park, and Pikmin set in the 17th century and at a Grim Reaper. Uh, you are the Grim Reaper, and your mission is to spread the bubonic plague across 17th century Europe. Once infected, uh, the horde of, of infected humans is at your command. Uh, it sounds like a lot of fun. There's a demo available for download at the Kickstarter page, and they need our help. There's only about three days left of the campaign, and they are still almost 200,000 pounds short of their 300,000 pound goal. That's a UK project, so it's in pounds sterling and all that stuff. So um, if you are interested in, uh, in Peter Molyneux, if you're interested in this kind of game, go check it out. And if you like what you see, pledge your support because they really need it. Uh, time is winding down and, uh, and it is possible that this may not fund. So, um, so yeah, give it, a, give it a look. In other Kickstarter news, Scott Murphy of, uh, of Space Quest fame and of uh, the upcoming Space Adventure project tweeted about a company uh, earlier in the week called Himalaya Studios. Himalaya Studios is kickstarting an adventure RPG-style game in the vein of, they say, Quest for Glory and King's Quest, and I guess probably more of the later King's Quest games. Uh, the game is called Mage's Initiation, Reign of the Ancients. Uh, they're only looking for about $65,000, and they're pretty close to their goal. They're just uh, above $60,000 now, and they still have about 19 days left in their campaign. So go check that out. If you like that style of game, then definitely give it a look and possibly your support. I'll, uh, I'll link these two Kickstarter projects in the show notes, as I always do. Next, in Sierra alumni news, uh, this isn't a new development, but I'm pretty sure I haven't mentioned it on the show uh, up to this point. Back in early February, actually specifically February 2nd, so almost exactly a month ago, Jim Walls, the creator of the Police Quest series, announced his intention to create a Police Quest-style Kickstarter to, uh, to start in the next few months. It hasn't begun yet. This was just kind of his initial announcement that he was intending to do it. Uh, it was announced on episode 20 of the Guys from Andromeda podcast, which came out back on February 2nd, as I said. Uh, and honestly, the rest of the interview is also quite fascinating as Jim Walls discusses with, uh, with Chris Pope, the host of the show, uh, how a police officer 
ended up making computer games back in uh, back in the 80s. So it's, it's really an interesting talk. And uh, within that talk, he says that he is definitely uh, organizing himself and his uh, getting his affairs in order to to kick off what will be a new game in the vein of Police Quest. Finally in the news, uh, not much to say on this last one, except a site with the URL lordbritishpresents.com has gone live with a, with a simple countdown timer, which seems to be counting down to March 8th, 2013. So it's a little over four days from today. Uh, it asks you to enter your email to receive breaking news from Lord British. I posted this on the Facebook group and it elicited a few groans from people. And uh, it doesn't take much to figure out what this might be. However, I will hold off speculation until we know for sure. So if you are interested in hearing what Lord British has to say for yourself on March 8th, uh, go to lordbritishpresents.com, enter your email into the email box, and uh, you'll get onto a mailing list, and we will find out very soon what it is that Lord British has to say. So I got a few emails to cover this week, which uh, as usual makes me very glad. I love it when you guys send me some stuff. So first, a quick note from Andreas. He writes, Hi there, Joe. I know I called you out a bit on the last show, but don't let it get to you. Calling out the caster is just a little fun we listeners reserve for ourselves. As I said, I never played King's Quest and I didn't play next episode's game either, so I don't really have anything to add. Instead, I'll just say that it was hard not getting my UMB cast fixed for a while. I'm not complaining that it wasn't there. You're putting this show out there for free and doing so when you have time is more than fast enough. I guess I just want to let you know that there are guys like me out there that enjoy the show enough to notice and miss it when it's not there. Good to hear you had a good time at the ski resort and didn't break your legs, I hope. Well, thanks, Andreas. And, and well, I did have a good time and I didn't break my legs, luckily enough, though uh, there may have been a few uh, opportunities for me to do so on uh, on some of the crazier runs. But um you know, I, I, I agree. Um, I try really, really hard to get the show out uh, every two weeks, like I say I should. And I know that, yes, I'm putting this out for free and you guys aren't paying anything for it and, and all of that. But, you know, I guess when people come in and they listen to my at least my show, I mean, maybe other podcasters are different. And I feel like I kind of make a contract with you guys. Uh, you know, I ask you to, to listen to the show and to send me emails and send me voicemails and be post on the Facebook group and, and interact and do all that stuff, but the contract there is that I put out a show on a regular basis when I say I will. And you know, so for me, missing a show is it it, it is it is a hard thing to do, and and unfortunately, sometimes my life does get in the way. And uh, you know, just uh, last time around, I'm not going to make excuses, but a whole bunch of things piled up with a vacation and then crazy stuff at work and just all kinds of other things. And uh, and unfortunately, it wasn't able to uh, to get out on time. And um, you know, I will as I always do, do my best to minimize, you know, off weeks or messed up shows. And in the past, I've done some kind of a week in advance to try and get things out on time or done what I can. So I will continue to do what I can. And I do truly hope that uh, going forward, uh, the shows will be out, you know, on as regularly as they can be. And, uh, and, you know, I thank you guys for listening so much and I will continue to do my best. So thanks, Andreas. Um, next, an email from BJ. He writes, The King's Quest show was absolutely fantastic. I loved your brief description of all the King's Quest games. And uh, knowing now what I know about what Telltale is doing with King's Quest, which flew under my radar screen, so my reaction to that news was priceless and unfit for the UMB cast. Besides, 
I have added all three KQ bundles to my cart over at GOG.com, and I will eventually get to these fantastic games to catch up before the Telltale game releases. Thank you, Joe. You actually described the KQ games in such a brief manner as to avoid spoilers, unlike the HardcoreGaming101.net book on classic adventure games, which pretty much spoiled all the games they covered. Also, looking ahead, uh, I've never played The Incredible Machine myself, but I do remember reading about one of the incarnations in a fairly short-lived magazine for something called Club Kidsoft. Uh, Instead of my describing it, here's a Wikipedia link that goes into more details than I ever could. Uh, I'll put that link into the show notes. Also, any chance on more edutainment titles like Super Solvers, Carmen Sandiego, and the rest uh, will be covered at any future point? Anyways, keep up the fabulous work, Joe, and see you on the Facebook page. Uh, you know, I, I, I definitely will cover more edutainment titles. Um, I didn't play a ton of them back in the day, and uh, you know, this is kind of one of the first, as we'll talk about in a little bit. Moving forward, The Incredible Machine is, is one of the first puzzle-type games that I'm covering and uh, I was a bit nervous because there isn't a ton of, you know, story and, and intricate audio stuff that you can put in and whatever, which I like doing, you know, with King's Quest. I really love putting in some clips and music and all that stuff. And, um, you know, but I think going forward, we will do more of these and, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see what the response is to this show. But, uh, you know, I played Carmen San Diego back in elementary school. It was kind of a way that they taught us geography and in, in our computer class that we had back in the day. Uh, and yeah, so, you know, thanks for, thanks for the comments about King's Quest and, um, great. Thank you so much. Finally, Father Beast left some website comments on the King's Quest post over at umbcast.com. Uh, he writes, interesting that you say today's gamers should start with KQ4 bypassing the first three. While the first three games have been remade with VGA graphics, the icon interface instead of text entering, and voice acting, they are available for free at www.agdinteractive.com. Com. Also, there's a fan-made sequel to the entire series available at tsl-game.com. As far as enjoying the ridiculously difficult puzzles in some games, I'm tempted to ask if you did the Babelfish puzzle in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy text adventure. But instead, I will ask if you were able to get through the guessing of the Rumpelstiltskin-type character's name in the original version of King's Quest, Quest for the Crown. Finally, I just discovered... There is yet another remake of King's Quest 3 to Eris Human over at infamousadventures.com. Well, thanks, Father Beast. And, um, you know, usually I do look into uh, into fan stuff just to see if there's any fan uh, fan remakes of everything. But the King's Quest show is so full that uh, I guess I just kind of uh, I neglected to do it. So that's great. I'll, I'll link all these sites and uh, to, to the King's Quest uh, stuff in, in the show notes. And, um, you know, I'm trying to remember... The original King's Quest, uh, I know this time around when I played through it, I just used the walkthrough because I didn't have time to sit and, and figure things out, and I just really wanted to get gameplay and story and stuff like that in. So this time around, I definitely used the walkthrough to get the uh, Rumpelstiltskin thing in the original game. Uh, originally, I feel like King's Quest V was the first one that I played, so when I went, I'm not even sure if I went back and played King's Quest One until this time around. I have vivid memories of what the game was, so maybe I did play it in the past. Uh, frankly, I don't remember. Uh, I wasn't incredibly great at Sierra Adventure games. Uh, I had other friends that were better at them, especially the old ones that had you know the wickedly hard puzzles. So I usually ended up breaking down and, and buying a hint book or asking people or, or whatever. So uh, you know, I probably didn't figure it out on my own because 
even looking at the walkthrough, I was kind of like, what? How in God's name would I figure this out on my own? It's like you have to figure out his name and then you have to decide that it was backwards and yeah, very convoluted, very complex. But those are Sierra adventure games, uh, wickedly hard, wickedly unforgiving, but uh, but a lot of fun nonetheless. Thank you, Father Beast. And you know, I've said it once or twice in the past, but if you guys don't feel like sending emails, if you do want to post on uh, on the blog post at umbcast.com, you can definitely do that. Uh, there's a there's a new listener who's uh, been posting. I guess she's been going through uh, every episode from the beginning, and she's been posting her thoughts as she's going through. She's up to about episode ten or eleven right now. So uh, you know, thank you. I believe her name's Alimia or, or something to that effect. Uh, you know, thanks thanks for doing that, and thank you, Father Beast, for posting on the website. It's always great to always great to hear from you. Uh, finally, on a little bit of more of a, a serious note, regular emailer Martin dropped me a line yesterday. Uh, if you all recall. Uh, Martin emails into the show every once in a while, and when he does email in, he tends to talk uh, about his memories of playing games with his dad and his sister, Sarah. Well, uh, he let me know yesterday, unfortunately, that Sarah was in a serious car accident, and uh, she's in the hospital, and she hasn't yet woken up from the accident, at least uh, as of last that I heard. Uh, I'd like to ask everyone listening to please keep Sarah and Martin in your thoughts and uh, and your prayers, and Martin, I truly, truly hope that uh, that she pulls through okay, and she pulls through quickly, and that everything turns out all right. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for So on to our main topic for the show, The Incredible Machine. Uh, this is a series of nine games, which began in 1993. I'm sorry, it actually began in 1992 with the original game known, of course, simply as The Incredible Machine. The first group of games were developed by Jeff Tunnel Productions, and all the games in the series were released by Sierra. So as we usually do, let's talk genre. And uh, once again, we come to a genre we haven't yet talked about in 24 episodes. The Incredible Machine is considered, at least for, by me, a physics puzzle game. Anyone with a smartphone these days is likely to be infinitely familiar with puzzle games. Their popularity has ramped up quite a bit since the advent of the iPhone and other follow-on mobile devices. Well, in our context, a puzzle game is a genre of video game that emphasizes puzzle solving. These puzzles tend to focus on logical and conceptual challenges arranged according to some kind of central theme. Uh, players are usually provided with an initial goal and a set of limiting parameters which act as kind of the challenge portion of the game. These parameters can include a, a limited tool set, a time limit, a move limit, or some other, any other kind of, uh, of artificial limiting factor you can think of. Completing puzzles allows uh, the player to move on to further puzzles with uh, a progressive increase in difficulty, although the, the ramping up of difficulty isn't necessarily always the case, or at the very least, a linear ramp up in difficulty isn't always necessarily the case. Uh, to drill down a little bit further into the genre, The Incredible Machine can be considered a physics game. Uh, in this subgenre, players are required to solve puzzles in an environment which uh, models either realistic or somewhat stylized physics. So with this in mind, let's move on to the story. Now, frankly, The Incredible Machine doesn't have much in the way of story. Uh, what story or framing it does have is, as usual with a lot of these earlier Sierra games, uh, is outlined in the manual. Now, this game does something I love. Like with Wing Commander and MechWarrior 2 Mercenaries and other games like that, this game's manual is in-universe. So instead of just giving us the info we need in a very, you know, business-like point, like, you know, 
technical manual format. Now, this manual is presented in the style of a series of journal entries. In this case, the entries are of uh, the creator of The Incredible Machine, who may or may not be named Tim, uh, from June through August of an unspecified year. The first entry from June 4th goes as follows. Major brainstorm last night. Woke up in a babbling frenzy. Images of gears, motors, fan belts, generators, all sorts of gizmos and gadgets buzzing through my brain. I'm jotting down what I can remember in this journal. These notes will record my progress as I undertake construction. The basic concept is this. The world is in danger of becoming boring and brain dead, and what we all need is some kind of major outrageous mind-blowing challenge. I'm talking about big-time challenge. Something that will make you rack your brain and think. But it's got to be fun. It's got to be wild and intense and full of weird twists and tricks. And that's when it hit me. A machine. An incredible machine. A machine that changes into a hundred different puzzles, games, and gadgets. And so, I'm taking on this outrageous task of inventing this machine. What will it do? How will it work? The possibilities are endless. So that's the end of that first entry. And from here, we learn a little bit more uh, through the rest of the manual as he proceeds to develop a set of thingamabobs for use in the machine. This brings us to where we can actually play the game. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So this brings us to the big section for this game, the gameplay. So if I haven't made it clear, the point of the incredible machine is to solve or develop puzzles using all the crazy gizmos provided to you. This game boils down to creating what are known as Rube Goldberg machines. What is a Rube Goldberg machine, you ask? Well, even if you don't know the name, you've likely seen one at least once or twice in your life. A Rube Goldberg machine is a deliberately over-engineered machine or system that performs a simple task in a needlessly complex manner. The concept was named after an American cartoonist and inventor named Rube Goldberg, uh, who lived early in the 20th century. The term was inducted into the Merriam-Webster Dictionary in 1931. So a classic example of a Rube Goldberg machine is one of Goldberg's original cartoons called Professor Butts and the Self-Operating Napkin. The contraption is activated when a soup spoon is raised to the operator's mouth, which in turn pulls a string, which then jerks a ladle, which throws a carrot past a parrot. The parrot jumps off its perch, which then tilts, turning over a bowl of seeds, which then falls into a pail. The extra weight in the pail pulls a cord, which opens a cigar lighter. The cigar lighter lights the fuse on a model rocket. Attached to the rocket is a sickle. As the rocket takes off, the sickle cuts another string, which allows a clock's pendulum to swing free. Attached to the pendulum is a napkin, which now swings back and forth, wiping the user's mouth. That's pretty crazy if you think about it. Uh, other examples of these machines I can think of off the top of my head are uh, the breakfast-making machine in Back to the Future and OK Go's 2010 music video, This Too Shall Pass. But there are many, many, many examples of these machines all across popular culture for, you know, the last 100 years at the very least. So we need to solve each puzzle in the game using the ridiculous and over-the-top concepts of the Rube Goldberg machine. First things first, though, after the intro and the credits, we have to contend with the game's manual-based copy protection. You're given a grid of 24 items used in the game and asked to select which three show up on a given manual page. In more modern versions of, uh, of the original game, more modern adaptations of the original game, uh, they kind of dispense with this. The, the copy protection is still there, but you can just choose any three items you want and it'll always succeed. 
Now, after completing the copy protection or faking your way through, uh, you're shown the control panel and the first puzzle preview. This is the screen you are presented with before every puzzle. The top of the window shows us the puzzle name and number. For this first puzzle, we see Puzzle 1 Tutorial. Put the ball in the hoop. Underneath and to the right, we see the preview. This shows us a small visual preview of the initial state of the puzzle, which pieces are out and locked on the field, other things like that. Below that, we have the puzzle objective written out. For puzzle one, it is fairly straightforward, though they are all fairly straightforward, even, even kind of the harder puzzles. This time around, it says, make the basketball go through the hoop. See? Easy! To the left, we have the control panel, where we can control some game functions. The play button obviously moves us on to play the puzzle. The up and down adjusts the music volume. Now, you may ask, why put the music volume control in such a prominent place? Well, I know for me, around this time at the very least, uh, a lot of sound cards, especially the one that I owned, had small internal amplifiers, which allowed you to connect unpowered speakers to them. And these cards had hardware volume controls, but at least the one I had tended to be on the back panel of the card in a somewhat inaccessible place you know, behind your computer. Having software volume control allowed you to adjust the levels without reaching way back behind your machine to fiddle with a little volume dial. Now, is this really the reason they put it there? I'm not sure, but that's what I used them for when I had my Sound Wonder Sound Blaster emulator card uh, back in the early 90s. Anyways, aside from uh, aside from all that stuff, you can clear your current work using the bomb icon, you can quit the game, or you can enter freeform mode, which we will talk about a little bit later on. So let's click the green play button, which is really all we care about doing on the screen at the moment anyways. This closes the current window, shows us the puzzle construction interface, and starts the timer. So for this first puzzle, we're shown a crude basketball hoop made out of uh, pipes and some, uh, some other flooring type material. It's on the right side of the screen. Next to it is a basketball sitting on a conveyor belt at the top of the screen. Uh, after that, we have a bowling ball on a conveyor belt in the middle of the screen, and another bowling ball with a conveyor belt in the bottom left, and next to that, finally, a bowling ball floating above empty space. These on-screen parts are considered locked and cannot be modified in any way. They're just going to behave the way they've been set to behave, and that is all. So strategy-wise, I found that your best bet for solving puzzles is just trial and error. Uh, so even though we know for a fact this machine is incomplete, let's hit go and see what it does. The right side of the screen has the parts bin and the start machine button. So let's hit start machine. Hmm. Well, not much happens. None of the conveyor belts move and the floating bowling ball falls straight down to oblivion. Since the bowling ball is the only thing that's moving on its own, we probably need to start our solution there. So let's take a look at our parts bin. Since this is just the first tutorial puzzle, we don't have much to contend with. We have three belts, three mouse cages, and three inclines. Clearly, to make the basketball move, we need to figure out how to move the conveyor that it's sitting on. So to move a conveyor, you need to attach it to a, a power generating part, I guess we can call it, via a belt. So which of our parts creates power? Ah, the mouse cage. So the mouse cage contains a mouse on a hamster wheel, or is it on a mouse wheel? Yeah, I don't know. Anyways, uh, to make most things in this game go, you need to bump them with something or otherwise entice them to move. So let's place a mouse cage under the suspended bowling ball. From there, we can string a belt from the gear on the mouse cage to the gear on the belt. Now, without running the machine, uh, 
we can surmise what will happen now. The bowling ball on the lower conveyor will move until it falls off. Let's put a second mouse cage under where the second ball will fall and uh, string that to the middle conveyor. That conveyor also has a bowling ball on it. So let's do the same thing one more time and attach it to the top conveyor with the goal basketball in on it. Awesome. We're done. Let's run this baby. Hitting run, the floating bowling ball falls onto uh, the first mouse cage, which starts the first conveyor, sending the second bowling ball onto the second mouse cage, which in turn sends the third bowling ball onto the third cage, which moves the top conveyor and drops the basketball right off the edge of the conveyor and straight down to the ground, missing the basket. So there's a gap there that we didn't take into account. Of course, we still have three incline ramps in our parts bin, so let's grab one of them and bridge that gap. Running the machine one last time, all the conveyors do their work, the basketball falls through the hoop, and we are successful. Now, I made that a little longer than it needed to be. The first puzzle is really quite straightforward, but it's a good basic example of how you'd go about figuring out more complex machines as the game progresses. You'll also notice that we had three inclines in the bin, but we only used one of them. The only requirement for moving on in the incredible machine is completing the goal. You don't need to use all the parts, nor do you have to aim to use as few parts as possible. You can create those restrictions for yourself as personal goals, but the game is open-ended enough so you can really play any way you want. Upon completion of the puzzle, your points are tallied up. Along the bottom of the screen, you have three point counters. The first one, labeled score, represents your total score. As you complete each puzzle, the points from the other two counters are added to this one. This total score is a running tally of your points as you progress through the game. The other two counters are labeled bonus one and bonus two. Bonus one awards points based on speed. The faster you complete a puzzle, the more points are awarded. So the bonus one counter starts at a set number of points and counts down to zero. So you take too long, you get zero points for time. Bonus two measures puzzle difficulty. The more difficult the puzzle, the more points you get. This is a fixed value. You get the full bonus two points, regardless of the time frame in which you complete the puzzle. Points aren't super important in the game. They're just kind of a way to measure yourself to see if you did better than you've done last time, things like that. You know, there's no bonus rewards for getting more points or less points or anything. It's just kind of a thing they threw in there because, well, people are used to getting points in video games around this time. So that's basically how it goes in puzzle mode. As you progress through the levels, things get progressively more complex and frankly, progressively more fun. More crazy components are introduced. For example, a variety of electrical parts come into play and they need to be plugged into power sources. You may have a fan which blows air needed to push a balloon somewhere or a vacuum to suck something up. Uh, you can plug these into an outlet with a light switch. The switch needs something to drop on it to flip into the on position. You can also provide solar panels. Uh, you expose these to a light source like a flashlight or a candle and they will power electrical items. Electric motors convert electricity to rotational energy to power conveyors. There's ropes, there's pulleys, teeter-totters, button-operated mechanical boxing gloves, gears, windmills, rockets, and even a variety of household animals to use. You can leverage Pokey the cat in your machine. He'll run after Mort the mouse or attack Bob the fish. Mort the mouse will run after cheese. Uh, Mel Schlemming is the human who will uh, keep on walking until he falls too far, gets eaten, or reaches his house. There's a lot here, frankly, much, much, much more than I remember. There are so many parts in this game, and wow, there's, there's a ton here. The original game contained 22 skippable tutorial puzzles and 65 actual gameplay puzzles. 
Uh, instead of implementing a traditional save game system, the incredible machine used a somewhat archaic system of passwords. Each level had a keyword, like fish, or calculator, or shuttle. Uh, then they were separated by a dash and an alphanumeric string, which would represent the score you had achieved when you first went the last time you beat the level. In addition to this progressive problem-solving mode, there's also a freeform mode in the game, which I mentioned kind of in passing previously. This freeform mode allows you to modify existing puzzles by adding or removing components, adjusting constants like gravity and air pressure, which will affect how parts behave. Uh, you can even create your own puzzles from scratch. The downside of this mode in this original game is that you have no way of setting the victory conditions, so the game will never know if you've successfully solved the custom puzzle. Still, it's a lot of fun trying to come up with contraptions on your own with access to all of the game's parts. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... So the DOS version of The Incredible Machine displayed decent-looking graphics at 256 color depth. However, the resolution they were displayed in was a very odd 640 by 448. We're not talking 640 by 480 here, 4 by 3 standard, you know, the aspect ratio. We have 640 by 448, which is for some reason just slightly less than 640 by 480. I couldn't honestly uncover a reason why the developers selected this seemingly random resolution. Uh, it does cause some minor issues when trying to scale up the graphics on modern systems using DOSBox. Everything displays, but in certain cases, especially on widescreen monitors, some fonts in the game get kind of a bit fuzzy, since the scaler is trying its best to make a square pig fight, fit into a, I guess we could say, slightly less than square hole. It's not a game breaker, it's just kind of an interesting fact, and I really would like to know why they went uh, with this kind of really strange non-standard resolution. The game's music is MIDI and was composed by Christopher Stevens and Tim Clark. Chris Stevens had worked on other Dynamics titles like Nova 9, the sequel to Stellar 7. Uh, the music is appropriately quirky and fun. I enjoy it quite a bit. It ranges over quite a few styles and uh, it really helps set the mood uh, for the game. This is not a serious thing. We're here to have a good time and we have fitting quirky music to match. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, on to my favorite part of the show, and I know it's some of yours, the dev story. The Incredible Machine is the brainchild of one of the founding members of Dynamics, Jeff Tunnel. Now, I already spoke about all the history in the meeting of Jeff Tunnel and Damon Sly back in Episode 9 when I covered Red Baron. To recap quickly, the two men met up and would eventually form Dynamics in 1984, based on the technological breakthrough of Sly's three-space game engine, which they'd use to make their great games like Arctic Fox, Stellar 7, eventually Red Baron, and more. However, a lot of this chat, you know, that we talked about in Red Baron because it was a three-space game and all that focused on Sly. Uh, when it comes to the incredible machine, Jeff Tunnel was the man. 
So over on his blog at makingitbigingames.com, a 2007 post talks a lot about Tunnel's love of design journals. Jeff states that a successful game designer shouldn't just try to have one great and perfect idea. A designer should have literally hundreds of ideas, and whenever you have one, you gotta put it down in a journal and fully realize it and keep those journals. In the post, he put up a picture of an entire drawer of a large filing cabinet jammed to overflowing with old design journals, design documents, and concept stuff. From there, he pulls out the original Incredible Machine design overview, which was dated 1984-1985, very, very shortly after he and Damon Sly had officially founded Dynamics. Suffice it to say that sometimes ideas take a long time to go from concept to market. The overview isn't incredibly long, and it gives us cool insights into Tunnel's thought process, so I'll just read it here. It begins, The Incredible Machine is going to be one of those educational programs against which all others are judged. Instead of following a certain sequence of learning, the computer becomes a world to be explored. Tim is the software equivalent of an erector set combined with a mousetrap game. The only programs currently on the market that could be compared are Rocky's Boots by The Learning Company and Pinball Construction Set by Electronic Arts. Tim consists of a set of objects and parts that can be used in any combination imaginable to create a runnable machine when complete. Using a construction method similar to Pinball Construction Set, Tim allows the user to go to a parts bin, extract an object, and then place it anywhere on the screen to create a customized machine. Once finished, the machine runs, doing either useful things, such as moving weights around the screen, or nonsense things, such as activating a noisemaker. Completed machines will be able to be saved and edited for later play using our exclusive high-res picture catalog. Tim follows conventional rules of physics, reaching hard to grasp concepts such as conflicting cycles, rotational direction, and timing in an almost subliminal manner. In trying to build a more complex machine, the user will automatically learn these concepts while having fun. As the program is developed, we will continue consulting with a graduate of the physics program at the University of Oregon to make sure it follows scientific theories. Tim is written in the fourth programming language combined with extensive assembly language animation routines. Because fourth is a portable language, conversions to other computers will be relatively easy. The demo is for the Commodore 64, since that is where the initial development has taken place. The Commodore version of Tim will be substantially complete by September, with the Apple version following a month later. Tim is intended to be the first of many such construction sets that could cover other areas of physics, such as hydraulics and electricity. Another spin-off of the technology developed in Tim could be a one-shot chain reaction type of program similar to the Crazy Clock game. The Crazy Clock type of game would contain more cartoon animation, taking a Rube Goldberg approach to its reactions. So that's the end of the document, and that was Jeff's initial concept for The Incredible Machine. Despite the timelines outlined in there, of course, the Commodore version was not complete by September 1985. Dynamics' focus would turn to their hit game Arctic Fox, which released in 1986. Of course, their relationship at the time was with EA, Sierra wasn't in the picture, so Tim was expected to be published by them. Of course, as tends to happen... Tunnel's design for The Incredible Machine was slotted away for almost 10 years. In those intervening years, Dynamics would become a leader in the simulation field and get acquired by Sierra Online. By 1991, the year after the acquisition of, uh, of Dynamics by Sierra, Tunnel was getting a bit burnt out. 
Under Sierra, he had at least three or four games under development at once. He needed a change of pace. Partway into the development of Willie Beamish 2, which is a game that would never see the light of day, he had had enough. He took a small team of about 10 people, moved out of Dynamics' Eugene Origin office to a smaller facility close by, and named his new company Jeff Tunnel Productions. The new group was still loosely associated to Sierra, but now Tunnel was free to do what he wanted under his own timelines. This allowed him to get back to his stable of ideas and draw from them. Of course, one of the first of these that he drew from was The Incredible Machine. Phew! Sierra! So the design of the final game differed somewhat from the design that we discussed. Uh, it took more of a focus on the Rube Goldberg approach and less on the pure physics, though realistic physics were still a very, very important component of the experience. So in 1992, The Incredible Machine released to very good reviews. Uh, the game was novel and addictive, however, people burned through the 65 actual gameplay puzzles fairly quickly. To address this, 1993 saw the release of the even more Incredible Machine, which added many new puzzles to the existing uh, base game. Now, with upwards of 160 puzzles and additional parts, the game really took off. Also in 1993, Jeff and Chris Cole created a small offshoot series named Sid and Al's Incredible Tunes. This was effectively the same game as The Incredible Machine, but it took place on a cartoon stage instead of the more grounded reality of the original game. Each puzzle starred a cat and mouse duo named Sid E. Mouse and Al E. Cat. Although not original when compared to the the first game, the original uh, Incredible Machine, this game was the basis for Jeff and Chris getting a software patent for the game so concepts of uh, solving and storing puzzles in a computer. In 1994, The Incredible Machine 2 released. Uh, though this game is still for DOS, it sported a more refined kind of Windows-style interface. It also introduced new levels, even more different parts, improved graphics and sound, plus two-player hot seat play. In addition, this sequel expanded the freeform mode of play, actually allowing you to set goals on user-created puzzles. So now people could really, really take advantage of this freeform mode and create real winnable puzzles in the game. 1995 saw The Incredible Machine 3. This release had one purpose and one purpose only, to port the previous game, The Incredible Machine 2, to Windows. The game's content was exactly the same, but the interface was further updated to bring it more in line with Windows interface standards and it also added CD audio tracks instead of MIDI music. This is where things stayed for quite a few years. In 1995, Tunnel was drawn back into a leadership position at Dynamics, where he remained until the division was killed off in the year 2000. Despite this, Sierra Entertainment released The Incredible Machine Contraptions and The Incredible Machine Even More Contraptions in 2000 and 2001. These games ran under Windows in 800x600 and majorly updated both the interface and the graphics. It also added the concept of hints during gameplay. Pointers with hints would appear on the field, helping players if they became stuck. Welcome to the return of the Incredible Machine Contraption. Hi, I'm the professor. I'm speaking to you through this loudspeaker because one of my experiments went wrong. I'm currently radioactive, and I don't want to contaminate you. Now, I've assembled dozens of contraptions for you to complete. If you can solve them all, then I'll know you're the one who's got what it takes to be my apprentice. Just choose where you want to go by clicking on one of these signs here. <laughs> Good luck! In October 2009, Tunnel's company Pushbutton Labs acquired the rights to the Incredible Machine after much legal wrangling with Activision. 
This resulted in the development and release of the incredible machine for iOS in 2011, which, uh, which may or may not still be available on the App Store today. So what does the future hold for the incredible machine? Well, since 2011, Pushbutton Labs has ceased operation. Tunnel has formed a new venture named Spotkin. However, there isn't much information about it right now, and uh, I'm not sure if the rights to the incredible machine went along with him to his new company or got acquired by somebody else. I guess only time will tell. So like we do usually talk about at this point, let's talk about where we can get the incredible machine today. All the games are available in a single pack from GOG.com for $6.99 US. This is one of the first agreements that, uh, that Pushbutton Labs made when they got the rights. And, uh, you know, they're up there for $6.99. They're available for download. They haven't gone away, even though Pushbutton has gone away. Uh, this is the original game, The Incredible Machine 3, and uh, the two Contraptions game. It's a great deal for lots and lots of crazy machine building gameplay. Now, I poked around the iOS App Store, and I could not find the iOS version of the Incredible Machine anymore. Uh, it's possible it got pulled when Push Button Labs went under. I'll have to investigate further on that. I only checked on my iPhone. Actually, you know what? I have my iPad right here. I'm staring at it. Let's do a quick search and see. And the result is no. Even on my iPad, I see a lot of games that look like the Incredible Machine, that seem like they play like the Incredible Machine, but there is no official version of the Incredible Machine currently available on the iOS App Store even though, uh, even though it was most certainly developed and released in 2011. Hi, I'm Francisco Ruiz, and together with my good friend Paul Powers and a rotating guest host, we make up the Retro Rewind podcast. Twice a month, we pick a movie or video game from 15 or more years ago and discuss whether it is still worth revisiting today. So if you've thought about rewatching The Rocketeer, playing back through Mega Man X, or you're just a child of the 70s and 80s like us, you should check us out for laughs, for nostalgia, and definitely for our take on what's a classic and what's second class. Find us at RetroRewindPodcast.com, where you can subscribe on iTunes, RSS, and more. So, big question of the show. Does The Incredible Machine hold up today? Well, I'd say yes. Frankly, the graphics, well, they're not stellar, do their job. The music is fun, and well, it takes a while for the difficulty to ramp up. Once it does, these puzzles become hard. Even the interface, well, a little bit clunky, doesn't really differ much from similar kinds of games that would come out today. While I certainly did play this game back when it was originally out, I wasn't a huge fan of the genre, and I really didn't spend hours banging away at it. Uh, it's a lot more fun than I remember being. So I do recommend this one, especially if you have younger kids, because they might even find the first series of 20 or 30 puzzles more challenging than an adult would. Uh, I'd kind of forget about the second and third games. The interface is very poorly suited to today's high-res monitors, and it doesn't scale properly. The, the window screen is uh, set to a fixed maximum size, so you know on my 1920 by 1080 monitor, it kind of gives you this Windows 3.1 looking desktop with some windows you can drag around, but you can't make them any bigger than they already are. So, you know, it's just not really suited to uh, to today's monitors. Plus, you have to mess around with Windows 95 compatibility mode to even get the game running. Now, the last two Contraptions games are also good, though I find the Hits Hint system makes the puzzles much too easy, even if you try not to use them, because they're always there by default and you have to turn them off. But 
frankly. And I don't think this is coming from a place of nostalgia because I didn't play this game very much. I had the best time with the original, or at least the one that I was given, which is the even more Incredible Machine, kind of the second release of the original. On top of that, as you play through this game, you can't help but notice concepts created here that were adopted into current day puzzle games like Angry Birds, Cut the Rope, and even games like Minecraft. So in addition to being a lot of fun on its own, the concepts of this game have defined a genre and they still do hold up to this day. Ah, the Upper Memory Podcast, one of the best podcasts around about geeky old-style gaming on computers. Well, we talk about old stuff as well. We talk about old classic television programs and films from around the world. So, if that's your cup of tea or coffee, then why don't you listen to us? We're called Waffle On Podcast, and you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or to our main site, which is waffleon.podbean.com. We would be honoured if you'd join us. So that's that. A little bit of a shorter show this week after the big, big, big King's Quest show last time around. Thank you, as always, to all the emailers this week. I have tons of fun reading and interacting with you guys week after week. Please continue sending an email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. Next week, I'm going to do another one of my personal favorites. Being the huge Space Combat Sim fan I am and the huge... Star Wars fan that I am, I am super excited to cover the X-Wing series from LucasArts. So this is going to be X-Wing, TIE Fighter, X-Wing versus TIE Fighter, and X-Wing Alliance. I'm hoping to hear from a lot of you guys about this awesome series. I know I am not the only one that spent way too much time beating my head against these games. So thanks as usual to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find him over at moyermultimedia.com. You can check out the show notes over at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. And me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes. You can stream it live at Stitcher Radio. Leave me some reviews at both of those places. Tweet about the show. Post about the show. The more people I get to listen to the show, the happier I am because... The more people we have, the more interactions we have, the more opinions we have, the more interesting everything is. So that's it for this week, and we will see you next time for X-Wing here in the Upper Memory Block.
Control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastriani. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join the unity.